Welcome everyone. We are currently going through the book of Romans and we are now in Romans chapter 3. And after a beautiful introduction in Romans 1, the first part of it, Romans makes a rather lengthy case to show us clearly that all of us, no exceptions, are unrighteous. None of us actually even come close to being truly righteous. Therefore, we cannot have true fellowship or communion or even friendship with God. Actually, worse than that, we also, because of our unrighteousness, unrighteousness we face eternal judgment. The first couple of chapters of Romans, the second half of chapter 1, chapter 2, the first half of chapter 3, we talk about three categories of people. First of all, like in Romans 1, there are those that are noticeably enslaved and, addict, and addicted to sin. In fact, they're kind of seeping deeper every day, and there's a downward spiral there. Then there's, in chapter 2, we see Paul describing the moralist. This is the person that's a good person. In fact, sometimes he'll even kind of, he'll kind of even point out that uh, uh, he's better than a lot of Christians that he knows his life, and that may even be true. You know, uh, and uh, but the problem is that he tends to kind of look down on others and compares himself with everyone else. In other words, his righteousness is compared to others and not compared to Almighty God. And then there's the religious person, the one that believes that because he's following the law or following religious rules, then he is better than the rest. And he also usually looks down on other people. And he also lacks compassion. In fact, uh, it can lead to self-righteousness and condemnation toward others. Like the moralist, he's always comparing himself to other people. But really, the moralist and the religious person, if you start examining what's going on inside of him, it's basically the same thing that's going on with the person who is in that downward spiral of sin. And so the point is, None of us are righteous. And I want to encourage you that if you have not listened to the last couple of messages, that you please do so because that's very important. It's a lot of bad news, but it's important to kind of have the bad news before we can really appreciate the good news. Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus, this is on the Sermon on the Mount, and he stuns his disciples by kind of making a very interesting comment. He says, Verse 5, verse, chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so even the scribes and the Pharisees who had memorized much of the Old Testament, who devoted their life to trying to follow every little rule, they were falling short. And so... We see that is the problem with all of us, you know, that we are not righteous. The Jews in the New Testament times, you know, many of them believed that their righteousness was sufficient because they were trusting in the law. And many Christians, quote unquote, today can be religious as well. And they are trusting in that they go to church, that they grew up in a Christian family, that they read their Bible some, that they pray to God. That does not 
make us righteous. So the concluding arguments of Romans 3, verse 10 through 20, I'm not going to read it now, but they are powerful and they settle the question once and for all that we are all unrighteous, every one of us. So today we're going to look at verses 21 through 26. And most translations begin this passage with, but now. In other words, after all that we've heard about how we're unrighteous and how we're, you know, there's the wrath of God that we can expect in our lives. These are two very encouraging words after these first couple chapters. They're filled with hope and promise because, because it says, but now there's something else and it's the gospel. So we're talking about the power of the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God being revealed. Actually, verses 21 through 26 is just really two sentences, but it's packed with truth. In fact, perhaps they're the most truth-packed two sentences ever written because they describe God's plan of salvation like really nowhere else. And it also serves as an introduction to chapters 4 and 5. So let's read Romans 3, verse 20 through 26. Uh, verse 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, and because of the, for, because of the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so let's go back to verse 21. It says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Kind of reminds me of Romans 1. Remember where we talked about in verse 16 and 17, it says, of verse 17, it says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And I know there's an illustration that um, you can kind of see here where it talks about, remember we looked at this a few weeks ago, is a homemade illustration, but it's, uh, it's the gospel and the gospel is proclaiming the righteousness of God to all the nations. Now, let's just, we've said this already a couple of times, but I think it's probably important to mention this again. In English, the word justification and righteousness are two different words, but in Greek, it's the same one. So we're going to be using it interchangeably as does most English translations, okay? To justify really means to make righteous, to make right before God. And so when I'm justified, I am made right before Him. I have been made righteous. And again, the words are used interchangeably. Justified actually is a legal term, pronouncing release or acquittal from some crime or transgression. 
is not necessarily a not guilty verdict, but it is a declaration that you are free. It doesn't count anymore. So in this passage, even starting in verse one, we can see a number of things about this righteousness of God. First of all, it was manifested or revealed apart from the law. In other words, we're not justified, we've already said this, or made righteous by any adherence to the law. The law can show us more clearly our need for justification, but it can't make us righteous. That's important for us, for us to get. We also see that the righteousness of God was witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, everywhere in, in, in between, we see references to men's, man's sin prom, problem and the promise of a Messiah. In fact, the first reference to this is probably Genesis 3 verse 15, and it goes all the way to the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi. We've talked about this before, but there's over 300 direct references to Jesus, the Messiah King, and a lot other more indirect references. I just want to mention maybe one verse. I could have mentioned 300 others, but uh, I think it sort of fits in with this, what we're talking about today very well. But Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. Just a second, I'm going to keep missing it here. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for, for David a righteous branch. That's talking about Jesus, we know that. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And get this, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And that's the promise is that God, Jesus specifically, would become our righteousness. Because our righteousness is no good, Jesus gave us his righteousness. And he did that by what he did at the cross, as we will kind of see a little bit later. Okay, so, so this righteousness, it was revealed or manifested apart from the law. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets. And it's also the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, verse 23, it says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is faith? Faith is more than just believe as we would know it in the English language and and really even in the uh, Spanish and French language. Uh, you know, uh, it's much more than just believing in the existence of, like did Jesus go to the cross? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think I kind of believe that. No, no, it's more than that. It involves a trust or a commitment to. So in this case, it's yes, Lord, I receive your gift of righteousness. I accept it. I trust in it. So it's a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. It's also, we can kind of see in these same verses, 
It's a righteousness is available to all who believe. Jews, Gentiles alike. Good people, those who aren't so good. Rich people, poor people, educated people, not so educated people, every culture, every people, every nation, and everyone in between. All qualify for this gift of righteousness because all have sinned. And that's the prerequisite. Remember we talked about, I think it was last time we went to Luke 5, verse 31 and 32. It's, Jesus said, I did not come to save the righteous, but what? The sick. I came to save sinners. So if we think we're righteous already, we've just disqualified ourselves. But if we know and recognize that my righteousness is not, does not meet the standard of God, then immediately I qualify for receiving this gift of righteousness. Verse 24 this is one of my favorite verses in this passage. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, starts off being justified. Now, that phrase, being justified, is in the aorist tense in Greek. In English, Spanish, French, we don't have that tense. Uh, it means literally something that is continual without stopping. In other words, a good example of the use of the aorist tense would be when, uh, when we're exhorted in the scriptures to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean just to be filled and that's it. It means to be continually without stopping filled. And so the same thing with this. Being justified is that it is something continual. It's not something that just happens once and we kind of hope that, well, you know, I don't sin anymore because we are going to sin, right? It's good for your whole life, this particular gift. Actually, you could put it this way. It's a position that we now have to stand before God, that I am continually being justified or being made righteous in the sight of God. So we can stand before him justified on a continual basis, acquitted, cleansed on a continual basis. It's something that keeps going on and on. And brothers and sisters, this is really, I feel like, one of the biggest secrets of having an ongoing relationship with the Lord, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. Because the question comes up, how do we stand before God? Do we stand before Him justified, knowing that we are made righteous continually? Or do we feel, do we stand before Him kind of guilty, like, oh, you know, I've kind of had a bad day. I've kind of had a bad week. I feel kind of ashamed, you know? Uh, Revelation 12, verse 10. Most of us probably know this verse, but it says, um, it goes on, it starts all about, now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. And then the last part, it says, for the accuser of our brethren, that Satan, the devil, the enemy, has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. One of the things, once we become a believer and become in Christ, Satan's power over us is extremely limited. 
one of the few things he can do is accuse us. And he's gotten pretty good at it over the thousands of years. And so he'll take a believer and he'll accuse them of this and that. You know, you don't act like a Christian. And you know, how could you do this? And sometimes he's right. You know, we, 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 we have done this and that. But the thing is, the accuser wants us to feel guilty, so guilty that we withdraw from God and we feel ashamed to approach him. God, on the other hand, wants us to go before him continually all the time, even when we feel like we've messed up and even when we feel like I've had a, the worst day of my Christian life. He wants us to go before him even when we have sinned. You see, it's when we come before him, even when we sin, we're told that the throne of God, and we'll look at this in a few minutes, is where we receive grace and mercy. And isn't that the best time to go to him? It's when we're sin, when we have, uh, you know, we, because that's the place where we can receive grace and mercy and be transformed. So, of course, it makes sense that the accuser of the brothers and sisters wants to keep us out of the presence of God. And so he accuses us and makes us feel guilty. But we have to realize this, that the only way that we can come before God it's not because of our own righteousness, but because of this gift of righteousness that God has placed upon us that walk in faith and receive this gift by faith. Okay, this same verse, it says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The redemption. That refers to the cross. And redemption actually has... Actually, if you look it up in the dictionary, there's two different aspects of redemption. One is ransom. You know, what's a ransom? It's a payment paid for the release of a, new, of a, of a prisoner, right? In this case, who's the prisoner? We are. And who's the one who paid? Jesus is. And what was the payment? His own life. His blood, right? So that's a ransom. He ransomed us. He purchased us. But it also, there's also another element of redemption, which means deliverance. And it suggests the type of deliverance described by the Exodus back in the book of Exodus, you know, where, you know, the people of Israel were taken out with a mighty hand and a powerful arm of God and just supernaturally took them out of Egypt and led them on the path to the promised land. So powerful, awesome would probably be the words that he described this type of deliverance. People are being set free from slavery, as in the case of, of the Israelites, from Pharaoh. Or maybe another more modern day example might be in World War II, when the Allies launched D-Day and uh, to take over Western Europe back from Nazi Germany. And within weeks, and certainly within several months, much of Western Europe was being set free. They were being delivered. There were parties celebrating in the streets because they'd been delivered by the Allied forces away from the bondage of Nazi Germany. And so that's, so when we talk about redemption, we're talking about being bought with a price and being delivered so it's not just 
being bought, but it's also the deliverance part of it is also important. Okay, let's go to verse 25 and 26. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, propitiation. That is one of those big fancy words that a lot of people don't have any idea what it means, but it's very important. A definition of it would be to appease or to placate, to avert wrath. It was a sacrifice and, uh, and propitiation, in, at least in biblical terms, like in the Old Testament, happens when there is the spilling or shedding of blood like with a sacrifice. And this is important. You know, Acts 20, verse 28, we can kind of just see this. Uh, it says, um, Paul's talking to a group of elders in Ephesus, and he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. See, he ransomed, he purchased that for us, you know. And then in First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed, so we're talking about redemption, with perishable things like silver or gold, from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In other words, gold and silver, they're not worth enough to be able to make this purchase for your soul and my soul to give us this gift of redemption, to give us this gift of, of righteousness or justification. You know, it had to be with the blood of Jesus, you know, who was God who came in the flesh. And somehow, I know it's kind of hard to get our arms around that, but we've got to start thinking about that. We, or else we, we, we lack the appreciation of what's happening here. I, I think maybe the other way to kind of look at propitiation is look at a little bit of background. First of all, in Exodus 12, there's the Passover. And what happened? It was the night in which the nation or the people of Israel was going to be released from, um, you know, from Egypt and their slavery. And they were given very specific instructions. You can read about it in Exodus 12, but basically they had to take a lamb that was spotless and they were to, you know, to sacrifice it and take the blood. And they, they were able to eat the, the, the lamb before they left, but they were to take the blood and they were to put it on their doorpost and the lentils of their house. And, um, and God said that he would pass over, that's where we get the word Passover, that home when he saw the blood of the unblemished lamb. And of course, that speaks very much of Jesus, doesn't it? The redemption or this redemption, this deliverance, therefore was to be celebrated every year in the form of a festival called Passover. And it still is. 
But we're also told, especially in the New Testament, when you get to the book of Hebrews, that really all that was just a shadow of the true and permanent redemption and deliverance that Jesus did on the cross for us. So that was part of the propitiation. Also, maybe even more vividly, there's the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament times, the mercy seat was the center of the Holy of Holies. Actually, in Spanish, it's called the propitiatorio. Can't get that out. It's got too many syllables there. But that's where the sacrifice was made for the sins of all the people. It would appease God and hold off his wrath for a, at least for a season. In this case, for about a year. And, um, and so it's like a temporary fix. It was kind of kicking the road down the, you know, kicking the can down the road a little bit, you know. And, uh, and it was here in the holy place at the mercy seat that this propitiation was made. And it was a public display, not, not you couldn't see it because it was in the Holy of Holies, but people outside gathered from all over Israel. And of course, when the high priest came out, there was great cheering and celebrating because the wrath of God had been averted for a little bit longer. And like I said, during Passover week, when this would happen, or in the week of uh, the uh, uh, Day of Atonement, people would come from all over the world, uh, Jews, that is, to see this. But now, at the cross, we're cleansed from all sin all the time. Past, present, and future. That's part of the message in Hebrews. So Jesus, we see in verse 25 and 26, became our propitiation at the cross. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, I love this verse. It says, uh, it says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. Who's worthy? Jesus to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what Jesus did. That's what he did at the cross. That's where he made the purchase. If there is no cross, if there is no blood, then there is no redemption, there is no propitiation, and there is no gift of righteousness for us. Romans 5, 9, it says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Because that's what a propitiation does. It averts the wrath of God. And really, it's just the, it's the just penalty for our sins. So, Jesus was able to pay for or purchase this gift of righteousness on our behalf. Let me just kind of read those verses again in Romans, you know, uh, verse 25 and 26. It says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. Not faith in anything else, but faith in Jesus. And we're going to talk more about that in our next session in the, if, with, when we look at the rest of Romans 3. But so, so, so what does all this mean? First of all, it means by faith, and only by faith, we can now receive this gift of righteousness, this gift of justification. It's the greatest gift ever. And Jesus purchased this gift at very high cost. Therefore, we can have, because we have this gift, we can have true fellowship with God. Because we've been declared righteous. We can have eternal life. Because we can, we can, we can not just approach Him, but we can live with Him forever and ever. And that's God's plan for us. He loved us so much that He arranged all this. He knew that we didn't have the righteousness, so He came to earth to die as a propitiation to give us this gift of righteousness that He could enjoy our fellowship forever and ever and ever. That's His gift. So that's one aspect of what we're talking about, what this means. The other aspect is, is that I can go before my God anytime in any place because I'm in a continual place or continual state of being righteous. I don't have to give in to guilt or condemnation or I feel bad or embarrassment. Remember, the accuser may accuse me, try to make me feel ashamed, guilty, but I can go boldly before the throne of God. And it's at that throne that I receive the mercy and grace that I need to live out my Christian life and to be transformed. That's the secret of that living relationship with God. And that's also why Satan wants to try to keep us out of this truth and understanding this truth. This is the beauty. This is the power, the awesomeness of the gift of justification is received by faith. That way, nobody can boast of this gift. It's available to all of us. So next week, we're going to finish up chapter three. It explains a lot more about what we've already been talking about and how this is simply by faith. But I want us to pray now, and I want to, I want to invite you because my guess is that there's some people who are listening to this message who probably are not sure if they've ever received the gift of righteousness. Maybe they prayed a prayer sometime, but it never really changed your life. It you, somehow, it just, it just never really, something never really happened inside. And, and I don't want to go into all the reasons why that may or may not have happened, but I do challenge you this, that if you're unsure whether or not you receive this gift of righteousness, you can do so right now. I just invite you to pray along with me as I'm, I'm, just, I'm just going to pray right now. You repeat these words after me. And, uh, and, and if you do this with a genuine heart and a heart of faith, you have that gift of righteousness. Yes, it's that simple. Let's pray. And again, follow along with me. Dear Father in heaven, I see now your gift of righteousness that you offer me. 
Yes, I've sinned. Actually, I've sinned greatly. Nothing I can do can make me acceptable or righteous or holy in your sight. I recognize that. In fact, Lord, I'm a prisoner to my own sin, selfishness. But I also see that you have paid a great price to set me free and to give me this gift of righteousness. I accept now this gift. I accept it by faith. I choose now to begin following you. I want to live for you. I choose to be your disciple. Thank you for this gift. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.